0: Warning, so I feel like uh, maybe this sermon should have a warning label on it, uh, warning this sermon is for those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, you know sometimes uh, like, like if you're allergic to something and uh, that's why they have put warnings like uh, this thing contains nuts. Peanuts, because if you eat peanuts, you might die, right? And so in the same way, if you listen to these words, and one of the things we're going to be talking about is the unconditional love of God, God's love for you that will last throughout eternity. But this only applies to a certain set of humanity, a certain set of people, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, those, as, as Paul will say, God's elect, those he's chosen and if, and if you're not part of that group, then I, I want you to, to continue to listen and, and, and be with us through this, and I, I pray that th- this uh, love of God we're going to talk about will, will draw you into wanting to be part of His chosen people. So if you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, today we're going to look at verses 31 through 35, but before we do, we need to uh, review the context A little bit. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is describing life in the Spirit, the importance of the benefits of living in relationship with God by the power of His Holy Spirit. Now, some might think that life in the Spirit means life without problems, life without earthly problems, but Paul makes it clear uh, uh, what his readers, what we know by experience, that whether you're a Christian or not, living in this fallen world means there will be suffering. Being a believer does not exempt us from the tragedies of life. In fact, following Christ brings that extra suffering that comes from persecution, living in this world that's against God and being for God. So some might wonder, is it worth it? Is the suffering, especially this extra suffering we experience in this life worth being a Christian, worth following Jesus Christ. And in Romans 8:18, Paul declares, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Paul says, No matter what kind of suffering you're experiencing now. It doesn't compare. It's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And by that, he means our future glorification. When we're fully transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. When we, uh, the children of God, receive our inheritance. When we're in His presence, the presence of God for all eternity where where there's joy and pleasures forevermore. The psalmist says, Our present suffering does not compare to our future glory. Amen? But what about right now? Where we live. Looking to the future is important, it gives us perspective. But, but we live in the now, right? And it can seem like God is only concerned about the, the later. God is calling us to think in terms of heaven when we're stuck here on earth. Well, Paul addresses that as well in verses 28 through 30. Which I think we did about eight weeks ago. I don't know how it was a long time ago. So quick review. Uh, speaking about our lives right now, he writes, and we know that for those who God, who love God And based on that, based on all of those things that God has done for us, Paul, in verses 31 through 35 and continuing into 36 through 39, which we'll talk about next week, but in 31 through 35, he asks a series of six questions. These questions are meant to drive home the truth of God's right now love for you, a truth that is of utmost importance that we believe that we live by. Why is that? Because believing in your head and and allowing it to penetrate your heart that God loves you is, I believe, the door to entering into a meaningful relationship with Him. God desires a real and an honest, a true relationship where you come to Him as you are, with all your faults and your failures, and your fears, and your sins, and your worries. You can take these things to God. You can come to God knowing they're part of who you are. Knowing that He will not reject you. That He will not abandon you. That that He won't crush you. Knowing that God loves you. When we know that God loves us, it enables us to experience, to remain in this continual relationship with Him. But on the other hand, if you're not convinced of God's love for you, then your relationship with Him, if you have one, will be sporadic at best. Why is that? Let me, we're we're going to talk about that, but let me first uh, illustrate it this way. You know, it would be a lot easier uh, for me as a pastor if my parents weren't in the audience every week because I have a lot of stories, and I'm not sure if they're true or not, but they probably know, but they're my memories, right? I, right now, though, this, I, I know this to be true. I'm in a good, positive relationship with my loving, earthly father because I, I know my dad loves me and wants what's best for me. I don't fear he'll reject or abandon me. I know even if I messed up, I can go to him and he'll be there for me. But that was not always the case. There was a time when I wasn't certain of my father's love. You see, my dad's not my biological father. He came into my life when I was uh, about six years old. Again, don't have a lot of memories about that time. and I'm not sure about the accuracy of the ones I do have, so what I'm about to say is based on a true story. On my seventh birthday, I received a pair of boxing gloves. And I remember my new dad getting down on his knees and letting me punch him over and over again with these boxing gloves. So, so there I was, age seven, giggling and, and, and wailing on my dad as hard as I could, over and over. Then all of a sudden, something changed. I don't remember if it was a look on his face or if he suddenly moved too fast towards me, but I remember thinking, I hit him too hard, he's going to kill me. So I turned and I ran down the hall and I locked myself in the bathroom. Why? Because I didn't know, I I didn't believe, I didn't trust that my new dad loved me. And so I was afraid of what he would do for me for doing something wrong, for hitting him so hard, my seven-year-old punches were amazing. Amazing. But that's what we do with God, isn't it? When we're not convinced that he loves us, we live our lives in constant fear of what he'll do to us when we do something wrong. Some people have uh, scolded me. Is that the right word? have said, you never tell us the end of the story. What happened? You're in the bathroom there and we don't ever get to find out. Well, it's not really important to the illustration, so, but I came out of the bathroom and he's still my dad, so there you go. But we live in this constant fear uh, if we don't know God loves us, when we do something wrong. I know this from experience. There was a time in my Christian life when I didn't understand the depths of God's love. I, I knew God loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but I didn't understand it. Not that I fully understand it now, but, but there was a time when I, I was very insecure about my relationship with God, a time when I knew of God's love only in my head. It hadn't penetrated my heart. And what that meant was, when I did something wrong, when I sinned, when I, when I thought I had hit God too hard, I was afraid. I was afraid of what He was going to do to me. I thought He'd reject me. That he'd leave me, that that somehow he'd remove the salvation he'd given me. And so I'd run and hide from him. I would figuratively lock the door and not let him in. And and that only served to prolong my my shame and my guilt, my suffering and sin. But when I came to understand in my heart that God loved me even when I sinned, it radically changed my relationship with him my uh, in my sin i no longer ran from him instead i ran to him i sought forgiveness quickly and therefore was empowered by him to overcome my sin because i i was able to maintain a, a relationship with him because i know that god loves me i know that his love is not conditioned on my ability to live a sinless life hallelujah Do you know that? That God's ability to love you is not conditioned on your ability to not sin. Otherwise, He would love none of us. But, just to to be clear, His love for me, in His love for me, He works in my life, in our lives, to help us overcome sin. He doesn't reject us because of our, our sin. He helps us overcome our sin because of His love. How do I know that? Because that's what God's Word teaches, and because of that's what I've experienced in my life based on God's Word. I live based on God's Word. I experience the love of God in my life when I live on, based on God's Word. I even feel His love. And so today, it's my purpose to help convince you through God's Word of His unconditional love for you, His child, given you are His child, that you may know and experience the love of God in your life that you may live for him because he loves you. And in Romans 8:31 through 35, Paul seeks to convince us of God's love with a series of six questions. So we're just going to go through these. Question 1, Romans 8:31, what then shall we say to these things? What can you say to all the things that have gone before in the book of Romans? If you've been with us, you know, what can we say to what we've just read in Romans eight twenty eight through 30, that God is working all things together for your good. Just grasp that for a moment, that God foreknew you and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, that God's transforming you into something like Jesus, that God called you and God justified you. Through the blood of his son and that God will glorify you. What can you say to the overwhelming generosity of God? It's like, it's like suppose uh, Bill Gates shows up at your door and said, I've decided to give you my $88 billion. I think that's what, he, that's what Google says a Bill is worth. What would you say? What could you say? Thanks, Bill. That's very generous of you. I mean, what what there are no words that could express the gratitude you'd feel. But let me say this. Bill Gates giving you $88 billion is some light, is like someone giving you a donut on Sunday morning compared to what God has and will give you. I mean, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much stuff you buy, how no much. How many pleasures you happen to get in this life because of your your wealth. This life and all it offers is like a, a, a puff of smoke. James calls it a vapor. It's here for a moment and it's gone. But what God gives you is not only amazing in this life. God doesn't just give you stuff. He doesn't just give you things, He gives you Himself. He enters your life, He transforms you into a a better person. A person who is is beginning now and will one day be fully conformed into the image of His Son, oh my God. Can you imagine? And everything God gives you will last for all eternity. I know we can't wrap or I can't wrap my mind around eternity, but it's a very, very long time. And God promises that in glory, in eternity, in heaven, He will be with us. In His presence, there's joy everlasting. There's pleasures forevermore. What can you compare to that? What can you say to that? I think the answer is uh, nothing. But there is at least one thing that I'd like us to say or think in our head. God must love me a great deal more than I can ever even conceive. I can't even conceive of the love of God that's going to give me all these things, that's transforming me, transforming me into the image of His Son. What can you say to these things? God loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So just reflecting on the things we've seen in Romans should be enough to convince us of God's love for us, even in our suffering. But Paul continues to ask his his love-convincing questions. Question two, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know that God is for you? Do you believe God is for you? Do you live based on the truth that God is for you? God loves you. And that means He's for you. And, and in fact, that's a, that's a great definition, I think, of, of the word love. We have a hard time sometimes defining love, getting a grasp on love. I mean, I love pizza and I love my wife. You know, the, the English word isn't, is, is pretty wide-ranging. But, but I think you love someone if you're for them. If you want what's best for them. If you're willing to sacrifice in order that what is best for them will take place. So if God is for us, Paul asks, who can be against us? I remember uh, growing up, we moved around a lot. Uh, I was always the new kid in the neighborhood or or at school. and, And this meant I got picked on a lot. The other kids would say things like, hey Cliff, why don't you go fall off yourself? Brilliant, right? Thanks. I often felt like everyone was against me, but, but for at least part of almost every summer, I didn't feel that way. Why? Because I'd go visit my cousin Chris. Chris was two years older than me and he lived in a small town, uh, Taft, California near Bakersfield, where he was born and he lived where I was born. And and then moved, and he knew all the kids. He went to school there. He knew all the kids. All the kids knew him and liked him. He was one of the cool kids, and when others found out I was Chris's cousin, oh my goodness, I became one of the cool kids. I wasn't just the new kid. They couldn't be against me because Chris was for me. And in a much, much greater way, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one or no nothing. There's no one or nothing in this world or beyond that can be against us. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean we will not face opposition. Remember, the context here is in the midst of suffering in this life. That doesn't mean that no one or nothing will try to come against you. It doesn't mean you won't have any enemies. It doesn't mean we're we're not in a battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. What it means is that when we face opposition, when we're in the midst of, of the battle, that God is on our side, that God is for us, that God is always working for our good. Think about that. God is always working for your good. That God is always using all things to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, no one or nothing can ever truly be against you. Because no one or nothing can ever be truly against God or His plans. No one, nothing, can ever hope to thwart the sovereign plans of an all-powerful God. We need to realize that for those whom God has chosen, for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, everything we experience, whether we would classify it positive, I mean, we we have things in our life that was a bummer, right? We have things in our life, oh, that was a good thing. Whether we classify it good or bad, positive or negative, it's from God and it's for our good. That's what the, the Bible assures us. Now, sometimes God allows us to see clearly. He gives us a, a glimpse. Oh, I thought that was bad, but it was really good. Even when things we would classify as negative happen to us, we can sometimes uh, figure out what God is doing. For example, when I graduated from college, I got a job as a computer programmer working for a company in Redlands that developed software for nonprofit, mostly Christian organizations. I had worked there for about three years, programming away. When one day the boss called me into the office, he and my immediate supervisor uh, wanted to talk to me. And through tear-filled filled eyes, not mine, but theirs, they informed me that I was being let go. The company had been trying to get a contract uh, to do the, the software, the computer systems for World Vision, but it it fell through and there wasn't enough money now to afford uh, me as an employee. So that was the only time in my life that I've ever been let go or fired. And being uh, fired is usually considered a a negative thing, and I certainly considered it a negative thing. I was going, you know, the things start, what am I going to do, you know? But the next day, I had a lunch appointment with uh, Phil Busby, the pastor of my church, Bible Fellowship of Riverside, now Bridges. I didn't know why Phil wanted to meet with me, and and he didn't know that I had just lost my job, but it turns out he wanted to offer me a paid internship as an associate pastor of the church, which I wanted much more than a job as a computer programmer. So I was unemployed for exactly one day. And that's a simple, maybe even trite example of when God lets us see his working for our good through negative circumstances. But most of the time, that doesn't happen. Most of the time, God calls us to to trust in Him for the long haul, to trust that even when things are not working like we think they should, even over a long period of time, to trust that God is sovereign, that He's in control, and these negative people or these negative circumstances are really not against us. They're, in fact, part of God's plan for our good. Believing that is really hard sometimes, right? Right? So how can we be sure of that? How can we be sure God is always working for our good? That God always loves us? That He's always for us? How can we be sure that God is in the present right now for us? And that God will be in the future, always be for us? Well, that's where faith comes in. As Job said, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? We're called to trust in God to trust in his promises, to believe that he is now and will forever be for us, even when we're experiencing trouble. But our faith, our trust in God is not blind faith. Our faith in the present and in the future of God's foreness for us is based on what God has done for us in the past. And that brings us to question number three. In verse 32, Paul makes a statement before he asks the question. So let's look at the statement first. This is a a statement of truth. It's the central truth of all human history. This is the foundation of our belief in God's love for us. He says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. This is the truth. This is the evidence that God is for us. And this isn't just any evidence. This is the greatest possible evidence The fact that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into our world. The fact that God decreed that Christ uh, would live among sinful humanity. The fact that God gave His Son over to wicked men to be crucified. The fact that on the cross, God imputed the wrath that we deserved upon His innocent Son. The fact that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. This is not just evidence that God was for us in the past. This is unrefutable evidence that God will always be for us because he has already done the greatest thing possible for us. It's inconceivable to think that he could suddenly turn against us. Think about it this way. In one of my favorite movies, anybody know what it is? Nice try. My favorite movie is actually ben her, but one of my favorite movies My favorite science fiction movie, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Are you with me? (laughs) In this movie, the ship had been damaged by an attack from Khan, of course, The Wrath of Khan. And the only way to regain control was for someone to expose themselves to lethal radiation. And so uh, Mr. Spock does that he goes in and he fixes the ship but he's exposed to radiation he sacrifices his life to save captain kirk to save the crew to save the ship and spock's logic was that anybody the needs of the the needs of the many outweighs the needs of the few or the one good stuff So in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Mr. Spock did not spare his own life, but gave himself up for his crew. Now in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, he comes back to life. Now you might think maybe these guys have read the Bible or something, or trying to do something. You know, he dies, and then he's come. Okay. He's not quite the same. He has to work it out, but it's still, at his essence, it's still Spock. And and we can trust, the thing is, we can trust that he is and will always be for his friends because we've the past evidence that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. He proved that he will always be for them. We can't imagine that one, one who gave his life for others would then turn around and be against them. We can't imagine Spock becoming a, a Klingon spy and betraying his friends because uh, he's proven his loyalty and his love. And in a much greater way, and in a true way, God, by not sparing His Son, proved that He was, is, and always be, will be for us. Will always love us. We can't imagine God suddenly now turning against us. He's given Jesus for us. What, would, what could possibly drive Him to turn against us? And then the third question comes. Based on the evidence that God gave His Son to sacrificially die in our place, how will He not always also with Him graciously give us all things? I mean, that's a lot. All things are a lot of things, right? If God has already given you the most precious thing He could ever give, the life of His Son, how can you think He could ever deny you anything? Have any doubt that He will not also give you all things? God is for us, therefore God gives us all things. Now, as I mentioned two weeks ago, I want to be clear about what Paul is saying here. Some take this to mean that God will give us the things we want in this world, but that's not what he's saying at all. This is a promise for, get this, something so much greater. Again, we we stick our minds here. We think Bill Gates' billions of dollars is what we want, that that's the greatest. But God offers so much more. This promise is of our eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this in Romans. That we will, as children of God, as uh, brothers of Christ in a sense, share in all things in the rulership of the universe, in in judging the the angels. We, We will share in all things. God loves us. God is for us. Therefore, God will give us all things, which leads to question four. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. The thing thing we need to see here is that our salvation, our justification, if you will, is a work of God alone. If you're a child of God, it's only because you are God's elect, That word elect means chosen. Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? Why does he not choose others? This is a huge theological question that we don't have time for today. Dang it. I'm saving it for Romans chapter 9 if you want to read ahead. But know this. God didn't choose you because you're awesome. He didn't choose you because of who you are. He didn't choose you because of something you've done or will do. He chose you when you were a sinner, when you were in rebellion against Him, in that while we were sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. He he died for us. He chose us before the foundations of the world, knowing we would be His enemies, that we would be in rebellion against Him. And when He chose you, He justified you. In Christ, He declares you to be righteous. That's what justified means. You're declared to be righteous before God. You're right. You're you're good with God. So who can bring a, a charge against someone who's good before God, before God's elect? And what Paul is saying is that there are no grounds to bring a charge against you. Why? Because God chose you. You're a child of God. You've been justified by God. You've been justified by the the shed blood of of Jesus Christ. So when the accuser of the brethren, when Satan or anyone accuses you, when you sin and and he says, or or your flesh says, or someone says, you're not good enough to be a child of God. Know this. The God who loves you has declared you righteous. Therefore, no one can accuse you. No one can oppose you. And question five, who is it to condemn? Who's to say you're, you're done? You're, you're out of here. You're condemned. No one can accuse you and no one can condemn you. Why? Because it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your ability to be righteous. It has everything to do with Christ. Paul explains. and Who is it? Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You can't be accused or condemned because of Jesus. Jesus died for you. He was raised from the dead, proving His, his victory over sin and death. And right now, don't, don't breeze over this, right now He's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. I don't know how all that works, because there's a lot of us, and a lot of us need a lot of prayer, but He's God. And I believe He's praying that God will do what it takes in your life, even if it means suffering, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Now I know uh, that when people tell me they're praying for me, I'm a little skeptical sometimes. You, will you really pray for me? Will you? Maybe that's because there have been times that I say I'll pray for you, and I I don't. I forget. I fail. Recently, Christy and I try to pray every evening together, and recently I committed to two different couples to adding them to our evening prayers. And we we do okay. We do pretty good. But we're not perfect. We fail sometimes. But that's not something we have to worry about with Jesus. Paul says, the Bible says, Jesus is is at the right hand of God interceding. That word interceding means to approach, to appeal to, to entreat someone. You could say it means to plead for someone. Jesus Christ is before God pleading for you. He's crying out to God on your behalf. Therefore, you cannot be. You will not be condemned because the only one who can condemn you is God. And God the Son who died for you is pleading with God the Father for you, for your good. If God is for you, who can be against you? If Jesus is praying for you, who can condemn you? Which brings us to the final question, question six. This is where all the others are pointing. This is sort of uh, uh, the final, concluding question: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Anybody want to? Anybody got an answer? No one. Nothing. If all we've seen is true, all we've just read, and it is. If God is actually for us, if God did not spare His own Son for us, if God will give us all things, if no one can bring a charge against us, if God in Christ has justified us, if no one can condemn us, if Christ Jesus died and was raised for us, if He is now interceding for us, then one thing is for certain. There can be no doubt of the love of God. The love of Christ that has a permanent hold on you. Jesus has a a firm grip on you. He's not letting go. As the author of Hebrews, quoting from Deuteronomy 31, writes, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. His, uh, His steadfast love endures how long? Forever. So the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, is rhetorical. If you know what's gone before, the answer is no one. The answer is nothing. And that's what Paul makes clear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. These are terrible things. And it brings us back to where we started. Remember the context of Romans 8. Living in the Spirit while experiencing suffering. Paul's not denying that Christians will experience suffering. He lists seven kinds of suffering here. First, tribulation, which includes the idea of being oppressed. Yes, Christians have been and will continue to be oppressed. Second, distress, which has the idea of calamity. Yes, Christians will experience calamity and disasters and tragedy. Third, persecution. Yes, Christians have been and will be persecuted for their faith. Fourth, famine, which which means the scarcity of food. Yes, Christians have and will experience physical hunger. Fifth, nakedness was, refers to great poverty where you can't even afford, can't even find clothes to wear. Yes, Christians have and will experience great poverty. Sixth, danger. Yes, Christians are not exempt from all kinds of danger. And finally, I can never pronounce sword right. Sword? Sword? Okay, whatever. Which refers to punishment or even punishment by death, being put to the sword. Yes, Christians have been and are being put to death, killed for their faith. And some might think that when Christians experience these things, when when Christians experience any kind of suffering, that it means that somehow God has removed His love from their lives. But Paul is saying, in this life... We face sufferings of all kinds, but suffering of any kind does not mean God does not love us. Know this, God's love is permanent and will result in our eternal good. And God is using the suffering in this life to conform us into the image of His Son. Why? Because He loves us. And so I'd like to just encourage you this morning... As always, maybe this is the encouragement of of every sermon, to live based on the truth of God's Word. To trust that God desires, as we talked about from the beginning, a real and an honest relationship with you. Are you in a real and an honest relationship with God? A relationship where you can come to Him as you are right now. That doesn't mean you remain there always. God is at work transforming you. But you can come to Him now. With all your faults and failures and fears and sins and worries, you can take these to God knowing that He will not reject you. He will not abandon you. He'll not crush you. Because even though the Bible, uh, Romans specifically, assures us that we're secure in God's love, we don't always feel secure, do we? This is our problem. It's our our lack of faith. Our unbelief. Because of our sin... (laughs) Because of the accusations of the enemy, we can feel unworthy of God's love. But we need to know God's love is never based on our worthiness. If it were, you would be right. You would not deserve, I would not deserve God's love. God's love is not based on whether you're worthy or I'm worthy. It's based on His love for and our acceptance of His Son, Jesus Christ. God's love for us is because of Christ. And Christ will never fail. So if today you find yourself not trusting God's love for you, not experiencing the love of God in your life, know this. God has not and God will not abandon you. If there's a problem in your relationship with God, the problem is not that God has stopped loving you. But it's possible, maybe even likely, that you've stopped loving God, that you've ran or, or walked or, or slowly drifted away from your relationship with God, that you're somewhere locked in a, in a bathroom. Maybe there's been sin in your life that's caused you to question whether God can love you. Uh, maybe there's been suffering in your life that caused you to question whether God does love you. And today, you're, you're, you're not experiencing that love, that, that fullness, that closeness, that intimacy that God has for you. You haven't rejected Him, but you're not loving Him and you're not living for Him. And so, I'll leave you with the, the words Jesus Christ spoke to this, this lukewarm church of Laodicea. I think they were in this state of, of not experiencing the love of God. To those Christians who are not experiencing loving relationship with God, Jesus says, Behold. I know this, we use this verse a lot to call people to Christ, and that's fine. But this is written to Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You've, you've, you're holding me at a distance. You put me outside. You're not experiencing relationship with me. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how long you've been drifting away from God, know this. If you're in Christ, God loves you. And he offers to enter your life, to be in relationship with you, to eat with you. This this, this symbol of, of fellowship, of relationship. To forgive your sins and to walk with you through your suffering. Maybe that's a the great definition of, of, at least in part of God's love, that he forgives our sins and then he walks with us through this life, through this life of suffering. Will you open the door and let him in? Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father God, Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we will not leave this place unconvinced of your love for us, that we, given we've trusted in you, given we've uh, given our lives to you, Lord, that we would not leave this place knowing that you have placed your love, your infinite love on us, and that you will not take it off, no matter what. Lord, I pray this. I pray that you would transform our hearts, Lord, and that we could begin to live in that love, knowing that you love us and that just enables us to to love you more, to love others, to live in a, a sacrificial way. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If after the service, anyone would like to receive uh, personal prayer for any, any reason, but especially if you're struggling to believe, maybe you're, you're sitting, okay, I heard it again. God loves me, but I'm just not, it's not there. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to hear of your doubts and your fears and, and pray with you. Uh, I or one of the elders will be up here after service to pray with you. Chad?